and welcome to the fourth episode of the Psycom podcast series brought to you by Chrysalis. I am S. Trisha and today we have with us Professor Sundar Sarukai. Professor Sundar Sarukai is trained in physics and philosophy and as a PhD from Purdue University. He works primarily in the philosophy of the natural and social sciences. Professor Sarukai was the founder director of the Manipal Center of Philosophy and Humanities from 2010 to 2015 and a professor of philosophy at the National Institute of Advanced Studies until 2019. Currently, he is a visiting faculty at the Center for Society and Policy, IISC Bangalore. He is also the co-chief editor of the Springer Handbook of Logical Thought in India and the series editor for the Science and Technology Study series, Rotledge. He also founded Barefoot Philosophers. He is the author of Translating the World, Science and Language, Philosophy of Symmetry, Indian Philosophy and Philosophy of Science, What is Science? And the two books co-authored with Gopal Guru, The Cracked Mirror and the Indian Debate on Experience and Theory, and more recently, Experience, Caste and Everyday Social. His book titled J.R.D. Tata and the Ethics of Philanthropy was published in 2020. He has been actively taking philosophy to different communities and places, conducting philosophy workshops for children and bringing philosophy to the public through his writings in media and through his initiative, Barefoot Philosophers. His latest book is Philosophy for Children. Thinking, Reading and Writing, and it has been published in English, Hindi, Tamil and Kannad, Malayalam and Bengali. Welcome, sir. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It's great to be here with all of you. Thank you, sir. To start with, how would you describe philosophy of science for our audience? What is its significance? Well, um, the best way to describe philosophy of science is it's a discipline, just like physics would be a discipline or mathematics would be a discipline. And like a discipline, it has many sub-disciplines. There are many specializations which one can do within philosophy of science. But if we don't worry about the ways, whether it's a discipline and stuff, more importantly, um, I would see it as a way of approaching what this subject is all about, okay? Um, what is the subject about? If uh, What does philosophy of science really, uh, is it really about? First of all, as the title itself suggests, it's philosophy of science. So you have science and you have um, science as something which is a, an activity which all of you do, which is a discipline. It is something to do with the uh, ideas of scientific knowledge. It has, um, it gives, tells you things about what kind of things exist in the world. I mean, if we listen to scientists, I have to trust you to say that there are things called electrons and atoms and DNA and you know all your chemicals that you talk about. So um, you know science produces all this information about the world. It produces knowledge. It produces objects of the world. Now, how do we understand it? How do we understand, for example, the nature of reality? So when you say philosophy of science, what it actually means is to bring a philosophical perspective to the activity of science. The activity of science is what all of you do as scientists and also what you produce as scientists. You know, all your knowledge systems that you produce. 
So uh, any philosophy of, like philosophy of science, philosophy of art, philosophy of language, etc., is really about using philosophical perspectives, questions, and frameworks in order to address what science is. So for example, you could have history of science, which will look at uh, historical forces in the development of science. Right? How did history historically how did science develop? You could have sociology of science, which will look at uh, you know various questions around the social organization which produces science. For example, in India, a very important question: um, you know, are there people of certain castes who find it difficult to enter into scientific institutions? Do uh, gen is gender a problem in the number of sci you know scientists scientific population in the country? You know, these kinds of, these are sociological questions and very important because without understanding that you can't understand science. So what philosophy does is it produces the questions it is interested in. And what is philosophy interested in? Philosophy is interested in the idea of the reality. What is real? Is this table real? In the table I see in front of me, is it real? And here philosophy and science both have a common uh, focus, right? Because science also does not believe that this is, uh, this table is real. And that's what all of you as physicists will tell me that the table is actually not real. It appears like a table, but it is actually made up of atoms and atoms are the real, true, real things. Right. So um, these kinds of questions are actually philosophy. So both philosophy and uh, science are actually and art, I must say, are often questioning whether the world that we see, the world as it appears to us, is indeed the true reality of the world, or is there a hidden reality behind it? Then the task of science is to show us the hidden reality. Task of philosophy is also to explore the idea of what is real, and so on. Okay. So, for example, uh, electrons you take for granted is real. I mean, I'm sure that if you take a questionnaire in Isar Bhopal and ask how many students believe that electrons are real, um, you know, if they are really well, if they're really going to look very seriously within themselves and answer, maybe some might say no. But let's assume I would say over 90%. Okay, it's something which you probably have to do a test and see. Uh, would say, yeah, electrons are real, atoms are real. But is that an easy answer? Is it an easy question to answer? To do science, do the science students say electrons and atoms are real because they have been told or they are convinced of the evidence? Because after all, when you look at, for example, the presence of an electron in a cloud chamber uh, experiment, or you see the photos, the tracks of electrons when they bend under some electromagnetic field, and you see a photograph, they are just like scratches. And from the scratches, you are inferring that they are electrons. So you're not really pointing to an electron in that sense. And you should remember even within science, even for atoms and molecules, it was a major debate even among practicing scientists. So as late as the early 20th century, 1900, 1910, 1920, people are still asking, are atoms really real or are they a way of talking about the world? So philosophy's questions, so when philosophers are asking, is the electron real? It is not that we are doubting you. It's not that we are challenging you. We are only saying, well, what is the nature of reality? What, how do I know that something is real and not real? 
And the scientists have obviously an answer to that, right? So philosophy, so one aspect of philosophy is to bring the philosophical question of reality to science. The other question of uh, philosophy, which it, uh, the framework which it puts on science, the question of philosophy from science is about the nature of knowledge. Knowledge is very fascinating. Science is all about knowledge and truth. You keep using the word truth. So science is about knowledge and truth. But uh, it is philosophy which will ask the question, what exactly is knowledge? Is knowledge different from belief? Is it different from some guesswork? What do I need to know before I call something as knowledge? And of course, scientists will say you have evidence, you have proof, you have theory, etc. So to understand the nature of knowledge is a sub-discipline of philosophy called epistemology, a theory of knowledge. So when, when philosophers are asking, what is scientific knowledge? Again, they're not criticizing question of what is knowledge. They're asking, what is the nature of knowledge in science? Is it like religious knowledge, for example? Is it like... Uh, psychological knowledge, for example, you have knowledge of what is happening in your head, in your mind, whatever you want to call it, right? You are having a thought, only you know about it, I don't know about it. Now, is that knowledge for you or not? Would it be true to say, for example, suppose I was saying, um, I was thinking about going to a film, for example, that's a thought I had, and I tell you, you know, I was actually thinking about going to a film, and you say, no, that's not true, that's not correct, that's not thing. How do we even, is that valid? Have I, don't I have knowledge of myself? So these questions about different types of knowledge are present. Moral knowledge is very important. Killing is wrong. Is that a piece of knowledge or is it just a belief? Can I justify it as knowledge? So there's an idea of justification which is connected to knowledge. So can I, can killing is wrong? How do I justify it? Does it become knowledge? So knowledge of the moral world is different from knowledge of the empirical world, which is what science is concerned. Look at knowledge of mathematics, mathematical knowledge. Is 2 plus 2 equal to 4 the same kind of knowledge that electrons are real or electrons have a negative charge? Electrons, at least you will say, oh, it's physical. It has properties. I can measure it. I can do some experiments with it. Well, what, what is the thing you, what kind of knowledge and what kind of truth is mathematical knowledge and mathematical truth? So that's another way of looking, using philosophy to look at science, to understand science. So you have questions of reality, questions of uh, knowledge, so epistemology, metaphysics, ontology, etc. You also have questions of aesthetics. You can bring the philosophical questions to ask, is there a sense of beauty in the practice of science? Many scientists have often talked about their work as being beautiful. What is beauty? What is this idea of the aesthetic? Who is going to give you answers to that? Scientists are busy solving their problems and doing uh, experiments. Who is going to give me a definition of what is beauty? What is truth? What is knowledge? I go to philosophy to do that. Then, of course, the big question which we very little talk, very little about, particularly in science institutes, the morality, the ethics of science. Is there an ethics of science at all? Can I bring the raise the question that whether it is uh, morally right for me to um, build biological, you know, these kinds of virus and stuff which you build in bio labs? Is it morally correct to um, even keep producing knowledge without worrying about its consequences and so on? Now, these kinds of questions, I have to look at the the, the discipline called ethics in order to use it to reflect on science.
So all the sub-branches of philosophy are used to think about science. So that I would call loosely as philosophy of science. And it raises various ways of understanding a deep, giving us a deeper and a more complex understanding of what science really is all about. That was a splendid introduction, sir. So how does understanding the history, philosophy and sociology of science help develop the future of science? Yeah, it's a very important question. And, you know, um, this is a question uh, which at least those of us who want to do history, philosophy and HPS, as we call it, history, philosophy and sociology of science or science studies, as we call it now, uh, we have to tell uh, answer because it's 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 upon us to be able to convince you that these matter to uh, something. I don't know that it matters to science or what. Um, and it's also true that a large number of scientists don't respect these disciplines or they don't think they actually matter to science, right? We know that very well. And that's the reason why you would have big science institutes for years in India without having professional historians, philosophers, and sociologists of science teaching these disciplines uh, and departments which are as strong in these disciplines as it is in physics, chemistry, maths, etc. I'm very glad Aisar Bhopal is an, now an exception to it. Right? Um, so what I'm trying to say is, but right from the beginning, if you look at all the ISAs and IITs, there's, and, and also IISC, um, you know, on many all these science institutes, TIFR, etc. There's a strong resistance against HPS because they misunderstand HPS as being anti-science, as critiquing science. But what they don't understand is, uh, it is almost like uh, calling scientists as anti-nature. Just because you want to understand nature, can you become anti-nature? If you ask, I don't know why the eclipse happens. I want to understand why eclipse happens. Would that be called anti-eclipse? I don't know what you want to call it, anti-nature, anti-eclipse. You want to understand what makes these things happen. So HPS is, uh, so the question of what HPS is relevant for is a difficult question, right? So uh, scientists will say, just because you do HPS, will you do physics better or biology or mathematics better? I don't think so. Okay, I'm, I'm saying I don't think so as a structurally, I don't think that just because you teach that they will do science better. But you know what I want to ask you? I want to ask you, just because you teach physics, chemistry, maths, you think your students are going to do, become better physicists, chemists, and mathematicians? Doing better, producing innovative work, it's not about what you are learning in classroom. If it were so, then everybody coming out of all our ISAs, etc., and IIT should be doing great work in science. And yet, look at this. Um, I mean, you have really touched upon a very important problem. So, but please stop me if I keep going on because you may have other questions, right? So, I'm just saying uh, because I think this is a question we need to answer in the context of our country: why they are resisting any of the uh, allowing these kind of disciplines or getting funds to do work in these disciplines extremely difficult science institutes won't do it you know so what i'm saying is the first question is does it help you to do better science in my view i think it does i mean i'm in a big minority in this why do i think it does it, it goes back to the definition of what it means to do better science for me, doing better science, a lot of science, let's accept it today. A lot of science is 
uh, clerical work today. What do I mean by clerical work? I don't mean it's anything less. I think clerical work is the most important work which supports the whole structure of societies, including science. Clerical work is you do some, somebody will do, you solve a model here, you do some numerical simulation there, you do an experiment that somebody has done and you do it. You know, today we, pub we publish about 3 million papers in science today. Scientists have no time to follow the amount of publications which are happening in science. And three millions are the published in one year, approximately between two and a half to three million per year, which are published. But 10 times more are probably being written and sent for publication and are being rejected. So much of so-called new knowledge is being produced every day. Doesn't make sense at all. That's, that's what I mean by the clerical work of a lot of science. But innovative work in science. What do you need to produce great innovative work in science? Just purely good science training will allow you to produce it. Maybe for individuals, yes. But for a society, no. My, the best example I can only give is empirical examples. Why is it that societies which have been very creative in science have produced so-called, you know, very high levels of science, let's say like the US, for example, or Germany, or even Russia to some extent. Uh, why is it that their science institute, I mean, their universities, which is where research and teaching happens, have produced some of, uh, you know, will have very good physics departments, but will also have very good humanities departments. If Harvard has very good physics and maths and biology departments, it also has an excellent history of science and philosophy of science and, uh, you know, uh, literature departments. And unless you have that, you cannot produce a culture of excellence. A culture of excellence comes from having, you know, uh, great excellence from other disciplines. So one of the arguments is to produce good science, you need a culture of creative thinking from different fields. And why am I saying this again? Because if you look at history of science, you'll get so many examples of great scientific discoveries and results which were not done by people following the rules of your discipline, sitting in your labs or solving some work. It has come from very creative inputs from suddenly encountering society or thinking about some other type of a problem or just sitting and daydreaming and getting an answer. You know, these are all processes which have produced good science. Now, is it an accident? And I hate saying this because people will jump at me, I know. But is it an accident that post-independence, we have not produced work in India, which has led to a Nobel Prize. In India, work with all the support we have had with such excellent scientists. I can tell you, I know a large number of scientists um, and whom I respect and admire a lot. And I know that they are phenomenally good, highly creative, highly intelligent people. Now, why is it that we have not produced any breakthrough research in any of many of these fields? In spite of the fact that today India is now one of the higher number of producing papers also in you know, publishing. Is it perhaps got to do with a very limited view of what we have understood? Is that inhibiting a great production of very creative scientists? These are, these are empirical questions. We have to think about it. How do we think about it? You have to draw upon people from other disciplines, sit together and think about it. That's why an experiment like ICER is so important. And hopefully, you know, it can change the culture of science in the country.
Okay, so sorry. Uh, uh, before I go on, I'll just stop with one more point on this. So one is about the impact of these disciplines for better science. But more important than that is that you need people, since science today is one of the most powerful social organizations in the country. In fact, uh, the amount of funding which goes to one particular human activity uh, is the largest in the case of science. Like artists don't get any amount of kind of money you get. So social scientists don't get a fraction, a minute fraction of what you get. Philosophy, of course, is zero compared to all this. Now, given all this and given the fact that scientists have very much of political power in the country and you know a lot of scientists say no 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 etc look scientists are there in all the advisory boards advising the government right from your telecom to your nuclear program to space program and so on and today we also know scientists are also the ones who are deeply influential in producing education policies for the country Okay, in fact, all the major education documents in the country which the government is following, including the NEP, have all been under the chairmanship of very good scientists. So scientists have the way what scientists think about their, uh, their discipline and think about the nature of knowledge, etc. influences our daily lives. It influences the lives of the people living in the slums, people who don't have food to eat. It influences the lives of all of us. And therefore, you always should be worried when a community has so much power to make social changes about how that community is going to be understood by the others. Otherwise, you will just become another religious oligarchy, a power center, which you, ca you cannot ask you anything because you say, no, 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 you can't ask us anything. That's, that's what's happened in India. You ask any question about any of these disciplines and to science, immediately you're called anti-science or they'll call you right wing, left wing, blue wing, red wing, whatever you want. The point is, that's exactly what the religious heads are doing. When religious groups had power over society and controlled it, then you couldn't do anything about them. Today, when scientists have so much influence on so much of our policies, right from economic to educational to technological, and all the implications follow, then it's very important that you have a specialized academic discipline called HPS or science studies to understand what is happening in the name of science. What is happening to the thousands of crores which are spent in the name of science? Um, should we not have an audit? Should people not ask? Okay, we are saying yes, give more money. My argument is give more money to science. But to say that nobody can ask us what we do with it, what we don't do with it. And only scientists will ourselves talk about it and say, yeah, this is great work, that's not great work, etc. That there's no question of social accountability. Or that you look at people who haven't done science as being, you know, whatever, lacking in whatever they think scientists have. That is wrong at the social level. And only disciplines like HPS can bring a kind of understanding to ordinary people about the nature of science so that it is not to regulate science, but it is just to regulate the abuse of science. Just like I want to regulate anybody who is powerful. If I am the leader and I'm going to be running your institution or whatever, I want you to have powers to regulate me. Right? That's the point. Yeah. Thank you, sir. That's a very intriguing perspective. So as you said, 
philosophy of science is not a very popular thing in a world where we can find many doctors of philosophy that's phd's in various scientific fields what motivated you to explore philosophy of science as a field in itself yeah um you know actually the reason why so many people get doctors of philosophy i mean you do um, you do you know management you get doctors of philosophy you do engineering you get doctor of philosophy and among all the doctors of philosophy there are very few people who are actually doing philosophy to get doctors of philosophy you know the number of phd's in philosophy is very less so everybody else has become you know doctor of philosophy and the reason of course is because philosophy is a founding discipline all disciplines come from philosophy right so whether it was your um, sciences which come out you know, you know you uh, i'm sure all of you know uh, even newton was called a natural philosopher till about the 17th century uh, there was no discipline like how you call these various disciplines they were all called natural philosophy and newton himself was called a natural philosopher and this uh, book principia when he talks about this it's a classic book it's such a great book it's like for me like a book of literature great literature to read and there he talks about philosophical rules philosophical methods of doing physics not physic you know scientific methods of doing physics so there there is a idea that philosophy was the mother discipline if you like from which all the other disciplines come and therefore it's a kind of a recognition the doctorate as being some kind of a higher level uh, thing um you know and there's a very interesting history of how it comes about to the phd levels and so on but um in my case um i didn't really shift to philosophy of science you know uh, i did physics because i really loved it and i knew right from school at the end of school i knew exactly what i wanted to do when i read quantum theory etc in retrospect when i think about it maybe i did it because i found quantum theory to be so simple and easy you know compared to what i think is a real tough physics discipline which i would have liked to have done but i'm sure i'd have been bad at it and i knew i was not very excited by it when i in my masters and that's statistical physics you know that's really hard physics it's not as simple you know i looked at schrodinger's equation and said wow this is it and you know it's not that difficult just solve some simple equation and you already discover electrons and atoms and, you know it's like crazy world yeah you know but uh so but i think i mean i was i was also very interested in philosophy in that sense um but just more as a teenager you know i liked nietzsche and stuff more as a form of rebellion i i, I even now i look at nietzsche as a rebellious you know teenage philosopher you can only read him in teenage i find it difficult to read him now but you know that guy is abusing everybody and angry at the whole world angry at the society family women men everybody so it was like wow you know when you're growing up in a nice middle class family and then you find that they actually publish books where these guys are abusing everybody it sounded very interesting but to me that kind of a philosophy was there but when i went to purdue to do my uh, particle physics i did a phd in particle physics um you know again i said there's still of some interest to me but then i realized that doing physics was not to understanding physics it was two different things because the kind of questions which went on interest intriguing me which i wanted to really explore were seemingly foundational questions why does this happen why does this mathematical structure work here you know what is the meaning of this concept it everybody says it works very well for example renormalization you do quantum field everybody is a renormalization and they say oh you know they laugh and say no no you know it's really not mathematically very correct but it works to me the question those are the interesting points of the physics 
And as I said, you know, um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a cop out because the real hard work in physics is to doing all those integrals and solving them and doing all of that. And that's a very important part of physics. But to me, given my inclination, I was more interested in the conceptual foundations of these ideas. And then what happened is I started taking courses in philosophy because I was very curious about philosophy. I never, you know, in Bangalore, even today, there are no philosophy courses which people can just take and study as a major, you know, and we have treated philosophy as a discipline so badly. And it's also the mistake of philosophers. We have not presented our subject very well. So when I went to the US and somebody said, oh, this guy is very good, or a person called Michael Weinstein, it was, a, it was the greatest revelation for me in terms of philosophy teaching. I went to his class and said, oh, I just want to take some classes of yours. He said, okay. And I sat in his class and then, you know, uh, it took me some time to understand what they're talking about. Why are they writing so much, you know? They could have done an easy, simple mathematical equation. Things would have been easy. The typical thing that scientists tell us when you talk to them about philosophy. So it started off like that. But then I took courses for many years and I just only did philosophy, not philosophy of science. Because I often used to say, and I shouldn't be saying this all in public, but let me say it. A lot of philosophy of science, when I saw it before, it was like doing bad uh, science in the sense. For me, it was like if I was anyway going to do these boring, certain aspects of boring philosophy of science, I would have to do science, which is far more creative. You know, if, if doing physics is a lot like playing games. You know, I mean, you guys make it sound very important by saying truth and knowledge and all that, but most of it, 90% of it is just you're playing some Sudoku or chess game, some moving, making some moves and solving something. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, that's what most of science is really. And that's the strength of it. I'm not saying there's a weakness, you know. So why would I do some vague philosophy of science when I can actually do something more interesting, although more difficult? So I didn't study philosophy of science. I just, I did uh, because of uh, the two people I studied with. Uh, they were primarily from what is called continental philosophy. So we did a lot of these kind of philosophers and stuff. And that was important for me to break away from, you know, in the sense to break my mind away from and also recognizing what do they teach in a different discipline. You know, that's why I'm so glad that, uh, you know, all of you have the opportunity to actually go to a humanities department, which we, none of us in our schooling time, college time could do. If you are in physics department, you can't even look at the uh, English class. You know, they not just let you into the class. You can't even talk to those guys. You know, it's, like I said to somebody else, some set of students, like women are from what Venus and men are Mars, that book. So I keep telling them it should actually be science students are from Mars and humanities from Venus. Completely different cultures of thinking and understanding the world. But now you have a chance of actually sitting through, listening to these fellows and seeing whether they make sense. And you have to criticize them to whatever it is. I mean, you know, engage them. But at least you're seeing a different way of looking at the world. So to me, that was a great entry into philosophy. And once that happened, you know, I think I knew I wanted to do philosophy. There's no way out. But I also wanted to come back to India. Um, so because my degree was in physics, I came back to math science to do a postdoc. Um, and then I was like desperate to get out and do philosophy because you know as i said by that time i realized that's really what my voice was you know and since i didn't study philosophy in india i didn't have any contacts didn't know what to do etc but anyway all these things happened and very interestingly again uh, it was a science connection dr raja ramana had started an institute called national so advanced studies within the iac campus and uh, ramana was very interesting i mean he's also see, called as a father of nuclear bomb right i mean uh, he was deeply inspired by Buddhist philosophy. 
and he, he had started this uh, in bangalore called nias and he had got professor srikanthan who was the director of tifr who was another physicist called a cosmic uh, astrophysicist experimentalist who had come back to bangalore to be with ramanna and they had also got another very famous sociologist mn srinivas one of the founding fathers of indian sociology and here there was an institute uh, they just started it's not really like an institute with any program just these four five people came together and uh, by some chance i knew they were looking for somebody then i applied and i went and i had an interview with shrikanthan and ramanna and they were like you know it's the first time i actually met especially we're going from math science first time i actually met scientists who are talking about philosophy without being negative towards it you know and ramanna was very deeply influenced by buddhist thought i mean was studying it was understand looking at buddhist logic and shrikanthan had already moved towards looking at questions of consciousness so he was very interested in the theories of consciousness so and they said no oh, we can start a philosophy of science group etc so i said great and then i just completely jumped ship as it were i would have anyway jumped ship i mean i was out of physics i knew after the two years in math science and i would have probably been a beach bum in chennai hanging around uh, but you know then this nias thing happened and said okay let me do philosophy actually all my training in philosophy can finally be put to use and that's how it started so my shift to philosophy of science was actually through these social kinds of social historical factors but uh, as i said even if there had been no institute there's no institute in india which does philosophy of science even today there are no full courses in philosophy of science offered like a full regular specialization in philosophy of science or even history of science so you know i would any i knew i would anyway have done it but uh, yeah why did i just not do completely philosophy because although all my training was only in philosophy and philosophy of science because as i told you the definition of philosophy of science is using philosophical perspective to understand science so my first book is actually illustrates how i approach this question right and the question was you know what struck me with physics uh, physics textbooks largely but science textbooks is that you know when you open a textbook of physics and you open a textbook of a novel for example you open a book of novel they look very different in one you just have continuous writing pages and pages of some english if it's an english novel whereas scientific texts are written differently there's a equation there's a graph there's some english words in between so i start i asked a very simple question to myself all my work i've done is for trying to answer questions to myself i asked the question how do people how do scientists how are they expected to read this book what language should they know what is happening cognitively to them when they read let m be mass the next line is m squared d squared by dx or something and so oh yeah now i understand what's happening how do you read a book how do you create a theory of meaning for a science text and that of course is influenced by my uh, studying in uh, you know in uh, philosophy about you know texts and meanings and texts and so on and the moment i got that i went and and that's my first book it's called translating the world science and language trying to see how science uses language and the question of mathematics is central to this of course and so somehow or the other i've come around all the time not to working on uh, you know established problems in philosophy of science which never interested me you know as i said science seemed to be more interesting to me than that but in trying to pose new questions in science which mattered to my understanding of science so the first one was science and language then the second book i wrote is in philosophy of symmetry and again it came back you know obviously in particle physics all you do is symmetry and group theory and then you also know if you look at arts symmetry is such an important concept 
So symmetry seems to be a very a biologically very, very important concept. So the question was, what is this concept of symmetry? What is it to do a philosophy of symmetry? So I went and said, oh, let me figure that out. So I went and wrote a book about it. So this is the base in which I've been wasting my time and doing what is what I call as philo my philosophy of science. Thank you, sir, for that wonderful insight. I'm sure it will motivate some of our audience members to pursue this field. You have noted that the philosophy of science is almost completely drawn from the Western philosophical tradition and that there is a need to decolonize science. What, why do you think this is vital to address in this age? Okay. Um, you know, as I said, you know, when I saw these questions, they're such good questions. So I must thank whoever put these things and all of you who have worked on this because it's really interesting because you have really caught on to some very important uh, points of which matter to the doing of science in India today. So the question of decolonization is always a, it's a political question. You know, it, today in India, you talk about decolonization, uh, you are branded this and that. I mean, today, I think this, uh, the, the standard branding is you are a writer, right wing, whatever. Okay, and it's a very troubling thing for many of us who have taken very strong left positions, who have written publicly against right-wing positions in various ways in politics and so on, and not, not just talking about it inside our houses, you know. Um, the, if you, the moment you say um, science outside the dominant West, you are immediately branded this. So it's a, I think that's part of the thing which we have to fight, and that's part of the worry I have when science institutions are becoming like religious organizations, you know? So in a recent discussion, uh, which I did for the clubhouse, a group of people who had wanted me to talk about something, they had been having this long discussion on uh, scientific temper and various things about science, okay? And so they had asked me to talk about something and I gave the title as saving science from scientists. And said science is very important. We can't leave it to scientists alone and other people have to understand it. And you know, as a, and the, the large number of those uh, people in that group uh, who came for the talk and who had discussions with me were from science, and they were very, you know, they are very pro-science, right? Publicly pro-science. And as expected, the organizers immediately, the moment I gave the title, they they said, "Oh, we should change it." You know, the science group will attack us and all that. I said, "Look, you're doing exactly like the jihadi questions. If I can't say anything about religion, other people will attack you. You can't give in to." the right-wing elements in science, right? Um, in the name of science is a very strong right-wing element in science. So, but anyway, we did that and people, there are a couple of people who wrote Facebook posts before the talk saying, oh, this is how right-wing is going to do this, etc." And then when I spoke about, when I, I said, I'm gonna go do it, doesn't matter. And I went and spoke in that and it's there in Clubhouse or YouTube also, they put it up. And I must tell you, it, and I was very, I was quite stressed about it because I don't want to deal with this. I'm, I don't, I can't deal with scientists who don't, who are not open about, you know, disciplines and so on. So I was trying to avoid it. I mean, I said, okay, I have to do it. I already committed. And a majority, there are quite a lot of people in that uh, talk and majority of them are science people. And I must tell you that after I finished the talk, we had a discussion of over one hour. And I thought I'm going to do a discussion of just 10 minutes because I said, you know, I don't know what kind of questions will come. And it was very good. Because the majority of the people who were there, more than the majority, wanted to know and were open to discussing about it. 
and it has actually been one of the best sessions i have done because you know it is not about each of us charging me saying oh you are uh, man arrow man you are it's not about that we are both struggling to make sense of this question what is this how do i understand this suppose for example the covid has come from a lab for example should we all not worry about what is being produced in the name of scientific labs should not the world ask what do you mean by doing science which is completely uncontrolled in this form so but the point what i'm trying to say is all of this hps is not about criticism of science as i said to understand this thing so um um why i was saying this is because i think i forgot your question there's a problem with talking too much yeah no so one of the reasons why i was talking about this is the the one of the problems of uh, questions of scientific the question of deposition comes from ayurveda for example ayurvedic knowledge or other knowledge systems and that's a red flag for a lot of scientists especially modern medical scientists who just come down to other science community the moment is ayurveda knowledge systems they will first of all you know reject it etc etc then it goes into this politics no the point what i'm trying to say is that to me my entry into the decolonization did not come as decolonizing question at all it came because of a very simple uh, thing which happened you know as i said you know after my encounter with the ramanna and others i really discovered indian philosophy i had not done indian philosophy when i was a student in philosophy in the at purdue because there was nobody teaching indian philosophy and nobody in the whole world uh, the western world and all the big best departments will continue doing philosophy as if it's only from one small group of white males largely okay so uh, for the so that i had no exposure to that etc but then i came and then i saw why is ramana uh, so he i remember he first time i met him and we had a discussion he said you know you should go check out the shabatsky's book uh, buddhist logic in two volumes and i went and looked at it and i said wow there's a lot of interesting stuff here about what is logic and stuff and then i um, discovered uh, one of the greatest philosophers in the indian context matilal bimal matilal who was at oxford then and he had uh, i mean he had just passed away or something like that. Uh, but he had written he has written some really remarkable books on um, nyaya particularly the nyaya tradition nyaya buddhist tradition and so on and when i read those books let me tell, i mean and this is not about being indian or chinese i mean if you if i had stumbled upon a, an ethiopian word of that of that nature asking those kinds of questions and analysis which are so deep it would still have struck me but it just so happened when i discovered matilal and then later on mohanty and others i discovered a really brave new rich world of indian philosophical traditions very critical and the point about nyaya buddhist etc they can give any logician the run for the money even today okay very deep very critical and that started you know so i started looking at those concepts and then it struck me that all of the philosophy of science i've been reading and teaching were also working on see what does philosophy of science talk about it lasts what is knowledge right so as i told you what is true theories of truth theories of knowledge ideas of space ideas of time for example these are common questions causality is another major theme which philosophers of science talk about because causality is very important for science but the nature of causality is extremely difficult to understand okay and a lot of philosophy has been written on that but when i am reading buddhist nyaya texts etc there's so much of interesting stuff on causality they have produced such great theories on 
causality, uh, nature of substance, nature of reality, quality. I mean, all the kinds of things which the Greeks had done. And in some or some cases, like the Buddhists and Nyaya, they've gone way beyond because it's a long living tradition of nearly 1,000, 2,000 years. And yet, not a single philosophy of science. The philosophy of science books will go back to Thales, Democritus, you know, much before um, you come to Plato and Aristotle, as the founding fathers of the philosophy of science. Because, uh, you know, they ask questions. Democritus is supposed to talk about atoms and, uh, you know, tales about, uh, you know, they remember this water and the earth and so on. And stuff about, uh, you know, nature of uh, permanence, existence, etc. And I'm like, well, um, why is it that when you have other, I, I was only exposed at that time to the Indian, then you have the Chinese and the Africans and so on. How is it that none of these very rich philosophical questions on cause, on the same topics, on space and time, you know how much there is on philosophy of space and time from these philosophical traditions? You can write a whole book on philosophy of space. We'll talk about, you know, Aristotle, Plato, the Greeks, etc. Not a word from any of the other philosophical traditions. This was the standard setup. I mean, some things are slightly changing in the last 10, 15 years, but not too much. So I said, you know, when I look at theory of causality from the Nyaya and Buddhists, they are very important and they are of great implication to a philosophy of science, which is not thinking of science, it's trying to understand nature of causality in science or the nature of objects in science. The moment you do that, people immediately started left, right, you know, that march past. So I said, well, the only way to do it is to show how it is, how one can do it. So I wrote a book, Indian Philosophy and Philosophy of Science. And it was not a decolonization project for me at all. I was not very much clued in. I wasn't very interested in the decolonization arguments at that time. And I just thought, well, I, I thought that it is uh, necessary for us to show people how to use these kind of, rather than just saying, which is what a lot of right-wing does now, the oh, Indian uh, people did that in India. That's boring. I mean, I don't even pay attention to it. The point is to show you and to convince you on why some particular ideas matter. So I looked, took, took up Nyaya uh, and Buddhist logic and uh, showed why it is so important to the way in which philosophy of science understands the, the role of logic within science. And also the question of language and its relation to reality. Some of the greatest work in philosophy of language, even today, comes from Indian traditions. From Patanjali, uh, Panini on his uh, grammar, the first, uh, you know, Sanskrit grammar. But beyond that, the whole school of grammarians who produce some of the greatest reflections on what is language, what is language's connection with the world. A very important question for science. So... I did all that and, you know, I mean, I, I know a lot of people use it. They, they keep saying they like the book and had good reviews and so on. But the philosophy of science community is completely, um, you know, it acts as if none of these things matter or people have written about this because they just don't think anything other than the Greeks or the Europeans would have had anything meaningful to talk about science and mathematics. Although some of the greatest mathematics in the world till the 16th century came from India. So the, you see the, already the problem, the moment I say all this, they say, oh, you're a nationalist. But when the moment the Britisher says about their own people, they're not called nationalists or when they talk about the Greeks. So there is just too many contradictions in the field. And I was not interested in the national questions on this. I was just interested in 
how does this philosophical tradition help us you know it's also interesting that it's the uh, the people who most who are most allergic to it are people in um, indian universities who think they want to do some philosophy or philosophy of science it's actually the west which has been little more open about this in fact in india it was so difficult to teach indian philosophy itself that's the that's when when i saw the impact of this book and why how people are reacting to it and not reacting to it or ignoring it or immediately imputing motives which i know i didn't have then i started getting more sensitive to the question of decolonization the difficulty of decolonization we have become so conditioned to thinking that we do this in science by the way and many scientists have been saying this for quite some time now some of our leading scientists have been saying that if there is a paper published with a sign address from india the chance of you going to spend time on it to read it and spend time trying to make sense of it is less than if you get it if you get another paper published from some other address ab abroad i mean this has been said so often it's such a cliche but the cliche has not changed the practice of people's way in which we look at uh, what is meaningful who can produce meaningful knowledge you know one of the reasons i i said earlier why is that we have not produced great science in the indian context i mean the so called famous like nobel prize etc and i have always used that example to tell scientists that look this proves the social nature of science something which you want to uh refuse to accept in the indian context whenever we raise the context of the social nature of science you say no 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 science is all about you know these cognitive characteristics and but i tell them the fact that your work has not become prominent is because it is not it show it proves that science is a social activity you need other people to pick up your work and build on it are you going to open up suppose you get a paper tomorrow you're reading you see a paper from some uh, let's say rvc uh, no uh, the colleges like that sri uh, sri ammal uh, pattayappa college of science kadalur tamil nadu okay and you are sitting in iser bhopal the really fancy international institution with all your international everything and then you are getting this paper from kadalur from this college you think you want to sit and spend next 3 days reading it and trying to make sense of it i'm not saying you won't i'm just saying it's that is a social process of how knowledge is produced whose knowledge do we think is important enough for us to work upon and that's the decolonization project we have completely lost our connection or our confidence in all of us today i'm not talking about the past decolonization is not about the past decolonization is as much a fight against all power structures whether it's uh, capitalism you know or is a creation of a huge amount of poor in india and so on it's a struggle against that and you know we have signed the science community has been quite indifferent to the larger world around them i mean i still find it odd i know it's a wrong question to ask especially to science students but i'm just saying just for a matter of argument that you know when so much we are building uh, rockets to the moon we have done all our you know we have now how many every time we talk about this let's say how many nuclear warheads india has or how many nuclear warheads pakistan has etc and still 
we have not found the technology or all the scientific uh, bright minds to say i am instead of building 100 warheads or 200 warheads nuclear warheads i have now pulled out 10 million people out of poverty due to my science and technology intervention the fact that you bring basic uh, 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 sanitation and water and food and education is that too much to ask and i know scientists response is very simple if i was a science student i'd have said it's not my problem i am taking my money i am doing whatever i am supposed to do you don't put all the world's problem on me why should you take it it's also i should also worry about it. even if i'm not a scientist i should worry about it but i'm just saying with the capacity to produce so much innovation within science with your technologies and ideas around it how is it that we are not translated to pulling out 10 people out of poverty that's decolonization at work i mean uh, that is colonization at work and what you need to fight these at all these levels is the idea of decolonization thank you sir for enlightening us on this idea you describe the need of society and authorities to keep a check on science for for social good similarly how can open minded scientists and their science contribute to the process of policy making and how can we work together to benefit both stakeholders per se hmm. um you know again a very important question it's already happening a large number of policy making as i said not just in education in environment in water you look at many of the members of people who are in water uh, committees looking at water distribution etc right or uh, climate change they're all scientists there are few social scientists there but in general from what i have seen um there is uh, there's very little of um, you know meaningful interaction between the scientists and the uh, the technocrats the technology people engineers and scientists and the social scientists um the social scientists understand society you may agree with them or you may not agree with them but at least that's their discipline you know like if you are a nuclear physicist and you tell me this is how the nucleus is i may agree with you or not agree with you doesn't come into the picture you know more about it you have done whatever it is you have learned about it okay and uh, if you have studied um, topology and surfaces you obviously know much more about it than i would know by just because i keep throwing a cricket ball doesn't mean i know everything about spheres so i grant you that fact that you guys know something about it but snatch scientists are so difficult to grant this simple observation to social scientists when social scientists say this is how society is water is actually a social commodity you know it has different ways of meaning they say no 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 you don't understand you are just confusing the issue we'll either model it or we'll build some machine on it etc and that takes care of the questions of water and stuff so this has been a problem with policy and I, all i'm saying is that Uh, now lot more science policy uh, initiatives are there around the country i still find that they are largely being run in the scientific um, world view and if they are open to drawing upon and listening to the others about how they understand society etc will be a major improvement and the real fundamental reason is not because scientists are obviously unpleasant people they are not well some of them may be but most of them are nice guys right but 
that's not the problem. but there's a lot more social scientists guys could be more unpleasant so don't worry about that no but what i'm trying to say is the real problem is not that it's about the fact that the scientists don't get the epistemology or the knowledge structure of the social science they don't they don't understand they don't not just understand it they don't respect it so there's a i have seen i was in an institute which had both natural and social science students and the social science students were i mean to use the word uh, very qualifiedly and carefully they were quite hounded and harassed by the scientists asking them questions about methods and their work in social science because they never try to understand what is what is qualitative method how does talking to some people help you what does it mean to do that so they will say what is this you're sitting and gossiping and you're calling it research there is a long history in anthropology and sociology which tries to refine these things and call it a method and so on so the lack of you know an understanding of the complexity of other kinds of knowledge systems something which is not reducible you know scientific knowledge as i said you know for me when i did philosophy the first problem is it's far more complex than science science is too easy for me in that sense it's much more simplified you know it's reductionist it's uh, ideal i don't have to deal too much at the first level i mean of course it goes on into higher and higher complications but uh, society is not like that i have to take so many factors into account and i have to find ways to do it so it is really the imbalance between the legitimacy of scientific knowledge and non scientific knowledge that's really the breaking point of uh, them working together in policy initiatives but you need them to work together because this this society is already a technological society india is already a technological society and it's already a religious society it's already a deeply culturally uh, diverse society you need you know people who are able to appreciate each one of your viewpoints as coming from your specialization and try to find a way together that's a very important perspective indeed so touching upon something you mentioned in the beginning what is the concept of truth in science because what seems to be true today can be disproved tomorrow and what seems to be impossible today becomes possible tomorrow um you know again a very important question it's already happening a large number of policy making as i said not just in education in environment in water you look at many of the members of people who are in water uh, committees will either model it or will build some machine on it etc and that takes care of the questions of water and stuff so this has been a problem with policy and the real fundamental reason is not because scientists are obviously unpleasant people they are not well some of them may be but most of them are nice guys right 